0: If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele.
1: And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is The Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 207 of The Leading Learning Podcast where we talk with Adrian Seeger, who is one of the foremost authorities on participant-led event design. Now, Salisa, you were the one who got to speak with Adrian. What do the two of you talk about?
0: Adrian really is the peer conference guy in my mind. He's been creating and running peer conferences for almost 30 years, and he published the book Conferences That Work in 2009. And Jeff, as you and I know from firsthand experience, that's a really wonderful how-to manual for planning and running peer conferences. So as you might expect, Adrian and I focus our conversation on peer conferences, what they are their benefits compared to traditional conferences, typical obstacles to moving to peer conferences, how aspects of a peer conference might be blended with a traditional conference, and more. I highly recommend Adrian's book, Conferences That Work, and I'll note that his website of the same name, conferencesthatwork.com, offers lots of very practical resources around peer conferences, so listeners should check that out. And I'll note, too, that Adrian has a new book due out in November 2019 called event crowdsourcing creating events people actually want and need and if that book is even half as practical and hands-on as conferences that work it will be an incredible resource i know i look forward to reading it
1: yeah i'm looking forward to that too like you said conferences that work uh, just a very very practical book uh, something i think every learning leader should have on their shelf and be taking down uh, often to to reference so looking forward to the conversation so what what reflection questions do you have to offer to go along with the episode, Lisa? And I'll remind listeners that they can find the reflection questions in the show notes that'll be available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 207.
0: First, if you offer one or more place-based conferences, listen to the six shortcomings of traditional conferences that Adrian mentions. Which are your conferences most susceptible to and are those shortcomings significant enough to warrant a change? Second, I ask Adrian about common obstacles to holding a peer conference. Which of the obstacles that Adrian mentions are you most likely to encounter, and how might you overcome those obstacles?
1: Well, those are some good, meaty questions to consider as we roll this interview with Adrian Seager.
0: Welcome. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Adrian Seeger. He is a meeting designer, facilitator, and presenter on participant-led event design. He's been creating participant-driven and participation-rich meetings since 1992. His first book, Conferences That Work, was published a decade ago in 2009, and it's a wonderful resource, a how-to manual for planning and running peer conferences. Adrian, welcome to the Leading Learning podcast.
2: Thank you. It's it's great to be invited. I love to talk about this stuff.
0: And so, before we dive in, um, you know, I obviously just uh, barely scratched the surface on on um, what you've done in your work and your life. So, what else would you like listeners to know about you and your work as background for this conversation?
2: Well, uh, some context. I I think it's good to add that designing and facilitating meetings is my fifth career. who knew? And uh, for the, you know, for the first twenty-five years of my life, I was an, a, a nerdy academic. I have a PhD in high-energy particle physics. Uh, so it has just been a a, a long, strange, wonderful journey uh, to realizing that that I love to facilitate connection between people, like a lot of uh, people who are really passionate about and enjoy being in the meeting industry. And um, during this this strange journey, I out of my own needs unexpectedly, I you know developed ways to create meetings that uh, b- become what attendees want and, and need them to be. Um, but but uh, your listeners should probably know that I've had to done, had these other sort of uh, times in my life. Uh, uh, I'm a Brit. I I, I um, did my PhD over there uh, and then fell in love with Vermont. And, and you can't do particle physics in Vermont, so I came here and started a solar manufacturing business. Uh, this was in the late '70s, uh, a long time ago. And um, then uh, went back to academia for a while, taught computer science. Um, and but the whole time I was doing all this, I was, um, I've always, I didn't understand this for a long time. I've always um, felt drawn to creating meetings about whatever I was professionally involved with. So, I, I did some physics conferences. Uh, when I was in solar in the late 70s, I started or uh, ran some of the, probably the earliest solar energy conferences in the United States. But they were all traditional events where, you know, you, you think, well, who are the experts? And then you come and you invite them to speak and, you know, the kind of conferences that we're all used to. And uh, it was only, um, it was 27 years ago in 1992 where I, I had i i i wanted to start a conference in a new field and uh there were there were all these people who uh, who were doing who had just started doing this this is the birth of the personal computer we were using pcs uh in small schools in education for the first time the small schools couldn't afford them so we um I wanted to do a conference, and there were no experts to invite, so I had to invent something different um, for this group of people. We didn't know each other. Uh, how could we come together and create a conference out of out of um, our collective experience and our collective needs and wants? And uh, that turned into 27 years ago. Um, a conference which is now, it's probably the longest running peer conference. It's been running continually for 27 years. Uh, it's generally agreed to be the best conference of its kind, and I don't have anything to do with it anymore. Mm. It's, it's the kind of thing that uh, peer conferences, uh, as we may talk about later, uh, if they started and, and, and designed right and facilitated well, um, tend to, people tend to love them and they keep on going. So that's a little context about you know, about uh, uh, filling in how I got to where I am.
0: Well, wonderful. Well, thank you for that added background. Um, and and we're going to focus the conversation mostly on this your your fifth career. And I do want to get into peer conferences. That's uh, the main focus of our conversation. But I think even before we do that, I would love just to get your thoughts on what you see and have experienced as some of the major shortcomings or, or potential shortcomings of those traditional. Conferences, especially when it comes to learning,
2: absolutely. Well, um, there are six major reasons why conferences uh, need to change from you know the traditional events that we've all been we we've been used to and have existed. You know, professional conferences have been around for a few hundred years now. Uh, at religious conferences much longer than that. Um, So, the six reasons are, the first one is the rise of online. I mean, for all of human history until the last 500 years, if you wanted to learn something, there was only one way to do it. You had to physically go to where someone who knew that thing was, and they would, you know, talk to you about how to do it, or they'd show you, or whatever. So, you know, you had to physically travel. You know, and books changed that uh, 500 years ago. Uh, Now you could learn things without having to, you know, the masses could learn things without actually having to... uh, uh, go to someone who knew things, but um, the conference model had been around. The, the the learning by going to listen to someone or have someone show you things has been, has been around, you know, for all of human history. And it's, culturally, it's a very very hard thing to change. But we all know now that in the last twenty years, with the rise of online, uh, you don't have to go uh, to uh, physically to see someone lecture anymore. Um, you know, you can just watch them on. There's probably audio or video or on YouTube or a private website, association website, and you can uh, watch them lecture. You know, from the comfort of your own home. You don't have to spend a lot of time and money going to meetings anymore. Which means that you know that that and what and what is happening uh, and why a lot of people you know contact me about uh, redesigning their meetings is that people are saying, well, I don't want to go to meetings anymore. Where People just come and talk, and and what they say is the most valuable stuff. Of course, is the connections that are going on, which is why, um, uh, which which fits in as I'll say in a minute, you know, beautifully with the whole concept of of better ways of learning uh, at meetings. So, number two is, of course, and I think probably most of your listeners know this by now that we don't, a lot of us don't act on it still. That lectures are a terrible way to learn anything. Um, they're definitely the most efficient way to broadcast content in person, and unfortunately, and we've known this for a hundred years or so now. Uh, research shows that they are the least effective way of mm-hmm. actually learning anything. Uh, you know, the the you uh, remember very little uh, 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 of what you hear or, or even see. Uh, you don't remember it particularly accurately, and you don't don't retain very much of it. So lecturing is, is uh, a terrible way to learn, uh, and we all know, and I'm sure many of your, your guests on this series also have talked about uh, active learning where, where the learners are actively involved in their learning. Um, they're interacting with each other. They're interacting with the content. Uh, they're exploring it. Um, and we know that that's far more effective. Um, so it's kind of sad that when you go to a, 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 pick a conference at random these days... Most of the time, there's someone standing in the front of the stage talking at you. That does not work very well. And peer conferences are very different in that respect, as we'll talk about. So, the third reason is, uh, as I've said, as a result, um, what people really want to do these days uh, is to connect around learning. Um, and um, this, as I say, there's all, these, all these things fit beautifully together because, um, uh uh our knowledge is increasingly uh incre- increasingly being um concentrated not in our brains anymore but in our networks uh off- obviously it's available online but in terms of um uh let's say dealing with new problems in our professions or um uh, whatever our work is um uh other people have become resources we're really well connected now uh we can we can uh, connect with someone, and, and, and so um, connection at meetings, meetings are, the prim- are are such an amazing opportunity. You're with you know, uh, 50 or 100 or 1,000 other people who do what you do, and there's incredible resources there, and uh, it's unfortunate that traditional meetings don't tap that very well. So, um, that brings me to the fourth part, which is that traditional uh, conferences don't really tap the fact that today everybody has uh, experience and expertise to share. Um, Anyone who's been working in a field for any length of time has experience and expertise. They've gained it. That is useful not necessarily to everybody else at a meeting. but. There are bound to be other people who that experience and expertise is valuable for. And what peer conferences do is allow you very early on to discover you know, those five people in the room who, in, a, in an ideal world, if you knew everything, uh, you would say, these are the people I want to hang out with because they are interested in what I have to... What I'm interested in, they maybe have solutions to challenges that I'm currently facing and so on. Um, and, you know, how many times have you gone to a conference. Uh, I used to go to academic conferences all the time with, you know, 200 physicists. So, I'm thinking, you know, there's no way here for me to discover those people in the room that I'd really like to, you know, meet with and talk to. You know, you, you the only options you'd have is you'd sit down next to someone at lunch and talk to them and, maybe the person who could change your professional life was, you know, three three uh, seats further away on the other side of the table, and you never talked to them because you didn't know. Peer conferences uh, uh, help greatly with this connection piece. Um, then there's a, there's a whole massive change um, that, again, some of your speakers may have talked about in the world of learning um, in how we learn what we need to know to do our job. This is number five, by the way. Um, Fifty years ago, you learned most of what you needed to know to do your job in the classroom. You know That was uh, pretty straightforward. And there's been research on this uh, that was done actually at the end of the last century. It's quite old now. Um, that shows that today uh, we learn, the typical figure it obviously depends on the profession, uh, is around 10%. You know, only about 10% of what you need to know to do your job do you learn in the classroom these days. Obviously, it depends on the profession. Most of what you need to know to do your job, you learn in two ways. You learn it um, through self-learning. You, you have a challenge and you go online or you, you know, check references or whatever it is you need to do or you read books. Um, and, but the other big piece is, is what I mentioned earlier, social learning. You know, you you learn from your colleagues if you work in an organization. Uh, you, there's a lot of learning that occurs, uh, informal learning that occurs from you know your employees. Well, how do we do this? You know, how uh, we had this problem. You had this problem a few years ago. How do we handle it there? And your knowledge networks, the networks that you have outside uh, your organization, uh, the kinds of networks that you can create through great uh, meetings. Uh, so. Um, That is a huge change, and and I would argue that we need, um, just as most of what we need to know to do our jobs these days, we learn from our peers rather than from the classroom. We need our conferences, our meetings to match match, uh, the way we actually learn uh, on the job uh, uh, these days as opposed to how we've learned uh, 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 traditionally through most of human history. And the final, number six major reason why uh, conferences, traditional conferences, need to change is, is, is actually the, basically the topic of my latest book, which is coming out in November, which is uh, about event crowdsourcing. And that's about uh, creating conferences that, uh, which the, the content matter and how it's, um, uh, how uh, the learning processes that are going on are developed in real time by the attendees at the event through a relatively simple process once you've actually experienced it and seen how it works. And the reason why this is important is that uh, that uh, it's clear to me has been clear to me for a quarter of a century now that pre-scheduled conference programs do not address I'll do a very poor job of addressing, actual attendee wants and needs and I know this because I've been running peer conferences for over for 27 years now and what you can do of course is you can compare what you know if there's a program committee that says oh, well these are the people we think should these are the topics uh, that that we think will be interesting, or you ask attendees at registration. You say, you know, what three things would you, you know, the registration form, and you compare those answers with what people actually choose in, in a peer conference model when they're given the opportunity to create the conference that they want and need. The best conferences, the best program committees predict maybe half of the sessions and topics that people actually want and need. So, if you're running a traditional conference these days, the sad fact is is that at least half the sessions you're offering are not what the people who come to your conference want. Uh, and that's if you've done a really good job. And mm. uh, frankly, of, and often, I mean, we've all had this experience. You know, you go to a conference and a program and it's your field and you think, well, there's two or three things here. You know, I'm really interested in that session. That one's kind of what I want. You know, that kind, that kind of stuff. You can avoid all that with a peer conference process. And I've been talking a long time now, so I won't (laughs) stop.
0: Well, no, that's great. I think uh, it gives us a really good sense of uh, the shortcomings of the traditional conference, these reasons that we need to change.
1: If you're looking to change the technology supporting your learning business, check out our sponsor for this quarter. Community Brands provides a suite of cloud-based software for organizations to engage and grow relationships with the individuals they serve, including association management software, learning management software, job board software, and event management software. Community Brands' award-winning crowd wisdom learning platform is among the world's best LMSs for corporate extended enterprise and is a leading LMS for association-driven professional education programs. Award-winning Freestone, Community Brands' live event learning platform, is a leading platform for live learning event capture, webinars, webcast, and on-demand streaming. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. And now... Back to the interview, as Salisa asked Adrian to define the term peer conference.
0: So we've been mentioning peer conferences, but now I think we should, uh, you know, dig in and, and let you tell us, um, you know, what do you mean by that term? What is a, a peer peer conference? What is a
2: peer conference? Great. Well, I like to talk about peer conferences in in the context of what I call a conference arc. These are conferences that have a pro a really well defined process, uh, beginning, middle, and end. And the middle is the part that looks most like a traditional conference. By the time the, the beginning is over, you've got a, something that looks like a traditional conference program. You've got people running sessions. And um, so I'll spend le- the least amount of time on that portion, though there are, those sessions are uh, somewhat different from you know traditional pre-programmed events with presentations. But let me start with the beginning. The beginning is really important because uh, you, you, you come together at an event and, you know, some attendees will know each other because they've been going to the meeting for years and there are new, new folks and so on who don't know a soul. Um, and what you need to do to create connection around content um, is... Um, First of all, you have, to do, you have to create the connection piece, and you don't do that artificially with, you know, icebreakers and so forth. There are multiple methods that um, I talk about in my book, and, you know, I can describe one or two of them, if you like, at some point, if there's time, or people can go to my website and read about them, or they can read the books and there's... Everything is there in, in painful detail, um, but there are ways. In very
0: helpful detail. <laughs> in very helpful. Well, yes.
2: I mean, they are longish. They are longish books, um, and um, but they will tell you everything you need to know, and also the, the why as well and the pre- preparatory stuff. But essentially, what has to happen at the start is you need to uncover the croup. There's crucial things that you want to know about people. There's really basically three things you want to know about people. Why they came to the conference, you know, what motivated them, including uh, experiences of the conference bef- uh, that they've had in the past and so on. What they're affi- obviously, you want to know who they are, their affiliations, maybe where they're from and so on. You need some very simple core basic data, You know what their job title is maybe uh, or what they do. Um, you need that information. And, their, and, but, and also, their motivation for coming uh, is, is uh, useful. But the second thing that is really the key thing um, that you need to find out early on in the conference at the beginning is uh, what they want the conference to be. My, my, the processes that I use invariably uh, have me saying, when I'm facilitating one of these things, uh, I say, what would make this conference great for you? And each and the process we use is each person in, in some in one way or another. It depends on the you know whether it's a one-day conference or a three-day conference. Or there's 50 people there or 500 people there. The details, the techniques, the process, the approach you use. Um, the uh, each person has an opportunity individually to share that information with the group. They want to, they'll say, you know, I have this challenge I'm working on right now. It can be very specific or it, it could be very general. Or I want to talk more about this particular thing. Is there anyone here, you know, who wants to talk about this? I'm fascinated in learning more about this. Uh, or whatever it is. So that's the second question. Um, what do I want to have happen is, is usually how I phrase that. And each person at the start of a peer conference has the opportunity to share that with um, typically up to about 50, 60 other people uh, at the event. if you have you know five hundred people, this is going on simultaneously in, in multiple groups, or if it 's a really short conference, it happens all in one session uh, in, a, in a different if in, a, in a different um, uh, uh, using a different uh, model but um, or technique but um, that's the second question, and then the third question—the third thing you want to know about other people—is you know what cool stuff has they done, what experience or expertise do they have that might be useful to other people there, and so everyone gets the opportunity to share that as well. And and what happens at every uh, peer conference I've ever uh, attended, facilitated, is that someone else will say, well, I just spent the last year you know doing X, and then the, and you can see you know in the room 20, 20 people are like. Oh, we're just about to do that. I, I I want to hear about what you did. You know, how did you do that? Did that work? You know, and and, and suddenly that person who just casually shared this, who didn't even know that there was anyone else there, you know, who was interested in this, is suddenly probably going to be running a session later in that second middle part of the peer conference because there are twenty people who've just discovered they did something cool. There's someone they did something cool. They want to learn more about. Um, so this. This initial process that I'm describing in in sort of vague terms, but it's a very, you know, I've developed ways of doing this, various ways of doing this over the last 25 years, creates um, uh, two things. It creates a huge body of information for the group to discover and say, look, there are a lot of things, a lot of people are interested in X, Y, and Z here. Uh, uh, You know, maybe we thought X would be be, uh, popular, but didn't realize that y and z a lot of people are interested in y and z and these things a b and c that we thought you know would probably be popular topics have hardly been mentioned so you know you have a the group gets a lot of really useful information about um um what people actually want to talk about and then the group also gets this huge body of information about the resources in the room you know and you discover there are these people who know a lot about you know Various things, and they become people who maybe are going to be running sessions. So, you after that disclosure piece, I'm spending a lot of time on this first part of the peer conference, but it's the really, it's a really unique part, and it's obviously really important. Uh, Then you need to have uh, uh, crowdsourcing. Occur where you basically take that information and you use process, which is what this new book is about, um, event crowdsourcing book is about, uh, to create essentially create a conference program that matches the needs of the audience, uh, that the, the, of, of, of people, of the attendees, the participants, with the resources of the participants. And you create a conference program that is optimized for the needs and wants. Um, and is, it, it is uh, fed by the resources in the room, the collective body of knowledge, of expertise and experience in the room. And that's, that's the opening part of a peer conference. Does that, does that make sense?
0: It does. And, you know, I, I'll let you know that I, I've read Conferences That Work. I find it a really useful um, book. And, and so I actually have one kind of perhaps in the weeds type question. But, um, you know, you were as you were talking about it, you were sort of saying, you know, whether it's 50 or whether it's 500. And I was actually thinking from my recollection of, of Conferences That Work that at least there you were thinking that, like, 500 might actually be. Too large for a it's successful great conference. Great so every, question.
2: everybody asks this, um, and sure, I wrote that book ten years ago, and you should know that I was—I am- knew nothing about the meeting industry when I wrote that book. I'd been do, uh, doing these meetings as an amateur for you know fifteen years. Um, and, um, anyway, the, the, quick answer to your question is there's a supplement to that book, um, mm-hmm. that's available for free. in uh, fact, it's gone through two editions now. You can download it from my website. Uh, and there's a very important section in that now about, um, how to extend the conferences the work model up to larger conferences of, you know, 500 or so. I, I want to say that, um, and maybe we'll get into this later, um, that, uh, the things that I'm talking about, th- th- I think the trickiest part of all this work is understanding uh, 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 the p- issues, what, what will scale and what won't scale. Mm-hmm. Connection doesn't scale. If you have, you know, two people, you can have a conversation. If you have 10 people, it's a little more complicated. If you have 100 people, you can't have a conversation with 100 people, um, you know, in terms of everybody talking. I mean, it's not a single conversation at that point. Right. So, um, but the quick answer to your question is there are ways of doing events with hundreds of people, and I would argue and have written quite a lot about this that uh, the very very large conferences i 'm um, somewhat cynical about this are um, there are kind of more like status reasons why conferences are very large uh, these days uh, because large conferences are generally i mean they can be exciting and you you have the resources to get, you know, very expensive uh, motivational speakers and so on. Maybe people you've heard of, which is always fun to actually, you know, hang out with and listen to them speak for a while. But um, they are uh, they are poor, very poor places um, to create the kinds of intimate connection and learning um, and active learning that smaller conferences. Um, uh, uh, have much easier time doing, and the interesting stats are that no one realizes. I think is that most meetings, in certainly in North America, I've seen the stats on this, are small meetings. I mean, far more meetings. The average size of a meeting in. North America is in the fifth, somewhere between 50 and 100 people. You just don't hear about those meetings mm. because it's the big, the big you know, industry or association annual meetings where there are thousands of people that have high status, and those are the ones you hear about. But the reality is, if you actually look at, and this is from hotel data, uh, most meetings are, are actually pretty small. So these peer, peer conference models work incredibly well, and I would argue are far more effective with small meetings than you know, having a traditional meeting. And so they're incredibly relevant.
0: Well, great. Thank you for, for answering that question about about size. And so then back to your kind of the, the three parts of the conference. You talked about that beginning and sort of got us through that.
2: Right. So at the end of that, you've got a conference program. Looks like a regular conference program. And the one thing I'll say about the middle, then the middle of the conference is you do that conference program. And the one thing that's different from that is that the sessions are relatively are relatively uh, informal they're, and they're interactive um, um, because of the whole um, uh, preceding work that beginning work has um, no one is expecting a polished presentation from someone who the night before discovered that you know they're something that in cool that they 've been doing for a year is something that a lot of other people want to hear about um, and so um, these sessions are are they're they 're always led by someone uh, they could be led by someone who has significantly more experience or expertise than other people. There might be several people leading them um, and, but they 're informal there are a lot of often a lot of discussion sessions where people are like we 're really interested in this topic let 's share what we know and you know learn together um, and I provide uh, when I do this I provide some uh, because most of these people have Many people have never been to a peer conference before. I provide some very simple um, guidelines on on a single 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper that allow um, people who are leading these sessions to do so successfully and avoid the sort of common traps uh, that people will fall into if they're suddenly asked to run a session without, uh, you know, and and avoiding them defaulting into feeling they have to do all the talking, for example, and, and so on. So that's the middle, and I want to I want to say something about the end of the of the conference arc of a peer conference because this is something that almost no one does, and it's um, there are two fundamental sessions that uh, I always have at the end of peer conferences, and they make it. I've added them because um, uh, they've been both around for about a dozen years now. I realize their importance um, because. Um, uh, they help to consolidate learning and they also uh, help to create community and create uh, future outcomes for both the individuals and the group and the two s- i won 't be specific about this there are two sessions i I, I, um, I um, strongly recommend at any peer conference uh, one is called a personal introspective and it 's a, a basically a guided um, session a two part session In the first part uh, there are a set of questions that uh, Everybody uh, answers individually for themselves uh, and it's about what kind of change you want to make as a result in your professional life as a result of attending the event um, so because we we all know we go to meetings we we hear great ideas you know we think oh I want to do that and then you know you write some notes and you get on the plane and you're you know you're tired and then you go work again on Monday morning and the notes end up on your desk and, you know, you find them three months later. And, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying everybody does this, but I've done it. Uh, oh, I'm guilty too. Right. <laughs> so here's the thing. You've learned all this stuff and you're motivated to make changes in your life. And, and I would argue, of course, if you go to a meeting and nothing changes in your life as a result, I don't think that meeting, certainly your boss is not going to think that meeting was particularly productive. You might've had a good time and, you know, had some good food and drink and seen a new city and, you know, had some neat entertainment and had some fun, but uh, that's not what we're supposed to be going for meetings for, though I have no problem with any of those things, of course. Um, so um, the personal introspective uh, helps you concentrate while the learning and the motivation is still fresh at the event, at the event, um, to think about what I would want, might want to change and then the second part of that, which is very powerful, is you. you people are in, put in are in small groups, uh, confi- and they can share confidentially with their group any any aspect of what they've just written down and get feedback and support about it. And that helps to reinforce the likelihood that this change will actually happen. You know, uh, changing making changes in one's life is hard. Um, whatever the changes are, so this is uh, a session that maximizes or increases the likelihood that you will actually. Uh, act on the learning, you know, uh, that you've received at the event uh, or the ideas that you've had and and the change that uh, may be motivated. So that's a personal introspective. And then there's a thing called, there's a session that that I was, that is the last session called, which I call a group-spective. And it's a spective from a retrospective. It's the opportunity for the group to look back at everything that's happened as a group and that always I these days I pretty much always start that with a public evaluation of a meeting um which is very scary to conference stakeholders when I tell them that we're (laughs) going to do this and it's wonderful because it's it's um uh, and i've never you know uh, i've never heard the, the worst i've heard is you know people come, you know they, when there was a morning there was a snafu about no coffee being available the oh, first morning of the terrible. event you know you're going to hear about that but it's like it's you know that's not the end of the world and everyone agrees that we shouldn't do we should that should not have happened but in general it's uh, the, the 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 there are many reasons why having a short and i can do this with you know 5 600 people in 20 minutes or half an hour Um, this scales perfectly you can do this with with many many people um, to create a a public awareness a a public uh, consensus on what the event was like the good stuff we start with the good stuff everything that was good and then we talk about the things that uh, could be changed the people some the individuals think uh, if we did this it would make the event even better you know and it's not like this is the bad stuff it's more like how could we improve this event or Mm -hmm. uh, what should we be doing that we're not doing, which leads us leads then eventually in that session to a discussion. Often you get initiatives, and people say, "You know, we should be doing this. We're not doing this. Why don't we do this?" And then you know you might set up a steering committee or you know exploratory committee to say, "Yeah, let's include that at the next year's event," or create a you know new event or whatever, or do something uh, in terms of developmental for the organization. Uh, that um, and it, it's all this is all grassroots stuff. Um, it, it, it's, and it's very powerful and uh, when those ideas come up they basically get acted on because people everyone experiences that they're they came up organically this wasn't like being pushed by one person um, you know that just it wouldn't work that way but um, people have ideas and and um and every now and again, uh, people say, you know, it's clear that the group says yes, we want to do this, or some of the group wants to do that, and I'm going to put energy into it. And that's how organizations grow, and that's how the conference may, might change if you run it again, um, uh, and so on. So that's the group perspective. So that's that's and, and um, so those two pieces um, form the uh, end of the conference arc for a peer conference, and that's that's the overall description. I'll peer a conference.
0: That's that's great. So yeah, you have this beginning, this middle, and this end. And and I know one of the points that you make is that by having those uh, two sessions, by having that personal introspective and the group perspective, I mean th- it really is a natural end. I mean you really are doing some of that um, synthesizing work that is pulling together what's happened over the course of the conference, which often doesn't happen at other conferences. So you know. I to me, I think peer conferences sound great. I think, you know, when you were talking about the six reasons to change traditional conferences and, and, you know, the benefits that peer conferences offer, it all sounds great. So I'm curious though, to know, um, in your work and your experience, what obstacles, um, have you encountered to holding peer conferences? You know, what, what tends to stop or slow groups down from, you know, adopting that Uh approach?
2: So I think there are really three things. I mean, the first thing is, as what I've alluded to earlier, the culture—what I would call a culture mindset. If we've been doing conferences the same way for our know, whole lifetime, you know, you've always ever, the only conference you've ever gone to is one where there are speakers who speak at you, you know, and you do some socializing in the breaks and you know, at socials and, and so on, and uh, you have low expectations of what the confer- a conference can do for you. I mean, the, the thing I hear over and over again, a lot of people say this. You say, I say, what do you expect out of this conference? They say, well, if I get one good idea every day, you know, um, and maybe meet, you know, one or two people who are interesting people doing a conference, it's worthwhile.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I'm thinking to myself, uh, from my experience, peer conferences, uh, will do significantly better than that. You know? So, I, I mean, I think we set, but with that bar that I just mentioned is, is what I hear a lot. And it's a very low bar. I, and my experience is you can do a lot better than that. But again, the problem is, is if you've, um, and it goes, and I've written a lot about this, Uh, you know, we have this culture mindset because this is still, unfortunately, how we are taught in school um, for all kinds of reasons. Most of the time in school, it's got a bit better. You know, we actually have, you know, some group learning um, experiences in school um, these days, which was not the case when I was a kid. Um, But in general, if you uh, looked at what happens in in schools, uh, you will discover that most of the time there is a teacher who knows far more about the topic, um, uh, talking and and explaining and teaching that topic to a set of kids who are interacting relatively little. So we have, are still in that model, that cultural mindset of this is how you learn, and it's very hard to change that mindset. It's not it's not so hard in terms of people on. Um, you know, if I'm listening to someone like me talking or if, which which will convince, you know, a proportion of people and say, yeah, I mean, I talk to people on planes about this and most of the time I say, that sounds really interesting. And sometimes it's like they totally get it and sometimes uh, it's like, yeah, it sounds great, but how would it actually work?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, so so a lot, I would say the majority of people do not understand how well a peer conference will work unless they experience one. So uh, if they're... You know, uh, you can uh, marketing these things is, um, is um, certainly possible, but there are people who, uh, if given the choice between a traditional conference and a peer conference, mo- many people will stick with what they know. Um, so th- that's, the, that's one barrier, general barrier. The second barrier is about status. I mean, there are many conferences where, um, you know, uh, I mean, in education, for example, you know, you want to get your, if you're in uh, higher education, you know, you want to get tenure, you've got to be in the front of the room giving papers a certain amount of the time. Now, that's a barrier to changing those kinds of conferences. Um, I have design conferences, you know, scientific conferences and so on where the scientists have complained in the past um, that they didn't meet each other they just all came and gave papers and, <laughs> you know it's like but there was no there was no kind of uh, interdisciplinary work going on you know connection going on and uh, you can do a lot better with that but again if those are conf- those are conferences those are actually private scientific conferences which are pretty rare where there aren't status issues involved um and um you know working for very large um foundations for example where there are say scientists who are hired by that foundation they don't have the same kind of status issues that if you're you know a physicist and you want to get tenure uh, you have to be in the front of the room so status is a big de- status issues are, are a big deal in terms of changing uh, traditional conferences so um, you know uh, can you can you get continuing edu- education uh, credits for um, being taking sessions at a peer conference. I would argue that actually peer conference sessions are more valuable than a traditional, you know, um, predetermined uh, lecture on a particular topic from my experience. But that doesn't necessarily mean that certification boards agree. The third piece is a very interesting one. Is It's to do with leadership perceived risk. Uh, I get approached by a lot of middle management or event planners who have read, you know, come in contact with my work and they say, this is great. This sounds great. I totally get it. And they are on board middle. I talked to those folks, um, the folks they would work with putting the meeting together. They are totally on board, um, with a peer conference approach. And then you go to, you know, the leadership or they go to the leadership. And one of my frustrations is often that I can't even talk to the person who is going to make the decision about whether this, this, um, new model of conference is going to be implemented or not. Um, when I can, uh, I'm usually much more successful. But even so, and I fully respect, you know, the fact that the, the uh, leaders at in, at institutions are often, you know, if things, this doesn't work out, it's going to look badly. Bad. They're the, they, the buck stops with them. Um, so, you know, uh, um, I understand their reluctance and certainly, you know, they need to be convinced that these these kinds of meetings are really valuable and, and better than what they have probably traditionally been doing. But that's something that I come across quite often, that that uh, I've been in situations where everybody essentially in the organization is like, we need to do this. This will be great. And then, the leadership says no, and it doesn't happen. so I think those are the biggest barriers and and, and I guess I guess there would be a fourth one, which is getting the word out uh, I've been doing what i've been doing for twenty five years i've been you know my first book on the topic came out ten years ago. I think the meeting industry uh, itself is much more aware in the in, in meeting industry conferences of the need there's a lot of talk about yes uh, participatory participative learning and active learning, most people, however, still get, when push comes to shove, they go back to the traditional models. There's still, it's still this whole you know, learning context and willingness to take a, what many people perceive and they, are, they have the right to do so as a risk in changing what they've been doing in the past. So, those I think those are the main barriers.
0: Well, so, you know, given th- th- those barriers, I know that um, perhaps uh, to address them or, or compensate for them, sometimes organizations will, will say uh, or a group will say, let's let's blend a kind of traditional conference with a, a peer conference. So, I'd be curious on your thoughts around that idea of, of blending and kind of what you've seen work when a, a blend goes well and maybe what hasn't worked.
2: Well, let me start with the, the, the biggest mistake that people make where they try to you know they they bless them they they say yeah we we our attendees are asking for more you know for a greater input into what we what we want what they actually want to talk about you know being able to determine that um, and, and and we want more interactive kinds of sessions uh, and so on and people come to me, uh, well, what a lot of people do, unfortunately, and this is a huge mistake, is uh, they say, well, you know, this sounds, it sounds interesting, and and yeah, we'd like to try it. So, we'll have a conference track that's a peer conference. Mm. (laughs) So, what you have then is you have a peer conference, which most people don't really know what it is unless they've experienced one, going up against the traditional conference sessions, which are like well, you know, I'm sort of interested in this, but at least I know what I'm getting. You know, I, it, I know the session will be about this and so on rather than this weird thing where we're going to spend some time getting to know each other and discovering, you know, what we really want to talk about and then creating a program and then having the program. You know, it sounds it's like um, they don't understand it as well. And the, so what happens when you do that, and I've seen this happen over and over again, is very few people come to the, to the uh, peer conference track and then the organization says, "Oh, no one's interested," you know, and then they drop it. And um, this is a this this uh, and and of course, you know, the, you're basically trying to to run simultaneously something that's that's very different and for most people with something that they know and and most people uh, and there are always people who will do the peer conference and have a great time, but the numbers are always disappointing. So the the biggest thing I would if, if I can make one recommendation about, you know, running, in, implementing any kind of peer conference, and that includes uh, simple things like just um, having some uh, crowdsourced sessions at a one-day event, for example, I do a few months ago. I did a, a client conference for a big for a corporate uh, client, and they we had a one-day client event about 450 clients there, and they said, "Would you uh, create? Um, we're going to set aside one hour." in the late afternoon to run a set of simultaneous sessions, and we would like you to tell us how to crowdsource those sessions so that they reflect what the people at the conference actually want and need. And I was happy to do that for them. But the the important part there is um, that one-hour slot during that one-hour time, that was the only thing going on. There was nothing else pre-scheduled. And so... If you're doing, if you're blending peer conference elements or pieces of peer conferences, which you certainly do, can can do, and it happens all the time. I get asked to do that all the time, or it could be half a day in a you know two-day conference. Uh, There are all kinds of things one can do. The important thing is the commitment you have to make to make it successful. Besides making sure it's well designed and facilitated, is uh, to make sure that nothing else is going on. To basically say we we. Believe that this is going to be useful, and we are we um, we are, we are um, uh, following that that by saying this will be the only thing going on during that time. You know, obviously you don't have to attend if you don't want to, but we're not going to provide something traditional uh, to compete with it. So, um, but apart from that, if you, as long as you do that, uh, you make sure that whatever peer conference elements you add in it 's the only thing going on at the time uh, there 's a lot I get asked a lot it 's uh, most people who come to me have an existing conference, and they are coming to me because you know, they or their attendees are unhappy about it or if they feel they could do something better. And uh, sometimes they want to go slowly and they just, uh, I will listen to what they want to do and what find out what they're prepared to do and how much time they're prepared to offer and then make suggestions, you know, help them design something that will be successful and then they can see what that's like and decide whether they want to expand it or keep it the way it is or you know, I'll say, no, that didn't work and um, uh, not do it again. Which doesn't happen very often, um, but uh, does. You know, they have the right to do that. So uh, it's perfectly possible to blend peer conferences and traditional conferences um, um, in all kinds of ways. And uh, so, I think I've told you the main reason, main thing, not to do.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like basically just don't have it. conflict with anything else uh, so that for that time that's given to it allow that to be the choice for the attendees so that everyone can fully invest and um, be be fully participatory in that peer conference aspect um, so you know at this point as you've mentioned you know you've been involved with peer conferences for 27 years um, you know you've been uh, refining your your process and, and the tools that you use all along the way but I'm curious to know, kind of where do you still see room for improvement? You know, kind of where are you still trying to get things to, to work better or you know, still hitting hiccups um, uh, or looking for better processes and, and maybe the fact that you have the the new book coming out, the event crowdsourcing book, that might have been one of the nuts you were looking to crack and has sort of made that next step with it.
2: Well, the first thing I should say is that it's not like I have all the answers. I mean, I, every time I do an event, I learn stuff. Um, and uh, it's sort of the reason why conferences that work have got uh, – you know, has had two supplements, um, that improve the process from what I've learned from running uh, peer conferences and other people running peer conferences and making suggestions in the last 10 years. So I, I, it's, uh, you know, I eat my own dog food. Um, I, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a strange metaphor, but you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I'm always, I'm, I'm learning and I'm trying, I try new things. Uh, and, um, uh, so, so, um, I've mentioned some of the adoption issues and I think that's education and the more people who go to peer conferences, the more people are going to, it's going to become, you know, a more normal part of, you know, a conference experience instead of being this weird thing that, uh, you know, a relatively small number of uh, associations and organizations um, do. Um, I think the Other issues, the other educational issues are um, the other, I'll just mention this now, the hardest thing very often is that, um, uh, not to crack, is that I tend to get uh, asked to be involved uh, typically, unfortunately, after clients have already chosen the venue for the event. Mm Um, and the reason why that's unfortunate is that uh, peer conferences because you need spaces that um, rec- that allow uh, interaction between people and can and you know active learning which involves people moving around and, and talking to each other and so on and various other techniques body voting and or you know, participatory voting, uh, all kinds of things that that um, require space and, and also incidentally involve people moving, which uh, helps them learn better rather than just sitting in a chair for an hour or two. Um, the venue, people tend to choose venues and lock up venues with contracts um, and then they call me and I'm and I'm saying, you know, this auditorium that you've chosen here, people can't really interact in that or this room that is, you know, according to the seating charts, you know, the hotel seating charts can hold, you know, a hundred people in theater style, uh, you know, can only maybe handle 40 or 50 people for some who are doing interactive work and often they haven't um, the, the space, the spaces, uh, and the conference venue itself may not be uh, optimally uh, set for uh, uh, um, for the kinds of designs that work best. And I have to work, you know, I work all the time with those limitations. Um, but it's much easier to uh, have conference design, uh, meeting design done be- before the venue. I mean, you maybe you've chosen a venue, but there are choices of rooms. Um, you know when the the venue is anxiously trying to get the contract signed, and afterwards, afterwards, you know it's very expensive to add additional space and so on. So that's an issue. Um, I, that's an educational issue in terms of getting clients to talk uh, earlier about their meeting needs and uh, in, in terms of these new this, this kind of design work, because uh, you do need more sort of. More rooms, more breakout spaces, and somewhat larger spaces—at least for some of the event. Not for often for just uh, the opening, um, the opening uh, of the uh, conference arc. You need um, some additional space, but the rest of the event you don't. So um, that's another issue that um, you know I continue to work on. Uh, I certainly work on with my clients, and and uh, hopefully in time, uh, clients will recognize the fact that they need you know, to get uh, the design piece in early rather than as a sort of afterthought after they've tied down the venue and, and the, the rooms involved.
0: That's right, setting the design uh, of the conference early on so that it really then is that um, mm-hmm. that's what everything else falls from and derives from. Yeah, the design
2: drives the venue choice and the room choice mm-hmm. and so on rather than, you know, you're, you're stuck with a particular venue and you have to get, you have to, you know, squeeze these processes uh, suboptimally into the spaces that you have. And I've seen, you know, that, and it sounds, it sounds, um, it may sound like not a big deal, but I, but, but, These processes work incredibly well when you have the space to do them. I mean, I'd much rather. I mean, and I'm sympathetic to the fact that you know space is expensive; it doesn't come for free. But again, with some uh, advanced planning, you can get the spaces you need um, beforehand, rather than have to negotiate for extra space afterwards. Or basically uh, discover that you can't get any extra space or can't afford it, and have to. Uh, compromise the design uh, to some degree in terms of effectiveness because of that.
0: So we're going to switch gears just a little bit um, for the penultimate question. This is one we ask of all guests on the Leading Learning Podcast, and it focuses on your personal learning. And so what I'd like to ask is, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education?
2: And there are lots of things that I could choose, and uh, I knew you were going to ask this question, so I thought about um, uh, the. I chose what I'm about to tell you because um, I think it, you know, it, it uh, illustrates the power of experiential learning. So the background is: is when I was a teenager, I loved to go to parties and dance, and. Um, or dance, as we say in America, <laughs> but you can still hear my British accent. And then something happened, and I don't remember what it was. It was probably something incredibly embarrassing involving a girl that I liked. And I became self-conscious about you know, dancing in public, and I stopped dancing. And I stopped dancing for 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Uh, Anyway, in, in 2003, I went to a workshop. And if you had told me beforehand that I would dress up in costume there and dance solo in front of an audience... I would have said, uh, A, you were crazy, and B, I would have skipped that workshop. That was incredibly (laughs) scary to do, but I'm really glad that I wasn't warned, because at that workshop, when I experienced dancing again, I remembered that I loved to dance, and I have been dancing ever since. And, you know, I, I tell this story because it just it, it it uh, you know, if I'd been reminded at the workshop that I used to like to dance, they'd been reminded, Adrian, you used to like to dance when you were a teenager. It wouldn't have made any difference.
1: Mm.
2: You know, all, all the lecturing in the world, someone say, you know, it's very, you know, a lecture in the world would not have shifted my belief that I really didn't like to dance anymore. What I had to happen, and it was like a scary uh, thing for me to do, and then it was incredibly liberating. It's like, I love doing this, you know i I had to experience dancing again to remember that I love to dance. I had to get on my feet and dance uh, so you know that's that's my that's a that's just one of the stories my sort of lifelong learning journey which uh, I hope never ends uh, during my life um, but it, I think it really illustrates. Suddenly, very, it was a very powerful experience for me, um, and made me realize, you know, the power of experiential learning in my life, and I believe in everybody's life, um, as opposed to the kind of learning that is uh, unfortunately to so often. Um, offered up at meetings
0: that's great it's a wonderful example like you said of experiential learning and and i think you might be the first uh, guest who's uh referenced dancing as part (laughs) of their (laughs) most powerful learning experience but so last question is um if listeners want to know more about you and your work or or connect with you where would you have them go
2: so um pretty much everything that you might want to know about me is on my website uh conferences that com. it's a one word conferences that work dot com um feel free if you're interested in you know if we have some kind of connection professionally that you that makes sense um i'm on linkedin adrian segar a-d-r-i-a-n-s-e-g-a-r and the social media channel that um you know i'm not sure if it's Days, this heydays are over to some degree, but I'm still, I still am on the most, um, the public social media channel is Twitter, uh, where I am at A Seager, A S E G A R. Um, And, um, you know, for many years I ran a, a, remember the Twitter chats? Um, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I ran the Event Profs uh, Twitter uh, chat for many years and uh, was involved in the Association Chat, A S S N Chat. Um, weekly chats, which have now basically gone online with the wonderful Kiki the Italian. Indeed, um, yes. And a um, good friend of mine. And um, so, you know, I, I was blessed by getting onto Twitter and people learning about me through Twitter. So I have a, uh, you know, 10 years ago when Twitter was kind of just. Becoming um, a, f- a force of nature in the social media world, and so I, I retain a soft spot for it. And um, I post there. Uh, you know, I, I if you if you follow me, you'll see. Um, uh, I I have hundreds and hundreds of posts on my. Blog, which you, uh, which is on my website, which you can read, or you can just follow my Twitter stream, and a, a random one will. They're most they're pretty much evergreen posts, so a random one appears every few hours, and a lot of people find me that way. So Twitter is is the other channel. Um, that's that I that I still uh, like to use.
0: Well, wonderful. We'll make sure to get a link to conferencesthatwork.com and uh, to your uh, Twitter handle and, and your LinkedIn uh, uh, URL. We'll get all of that into the show thank notes you. for this episode. So, Adrian, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, I
2: love talking about it. Thanks for the opportunity to, to share this with your, your listeners. Thanks.
1: That concludes this interview with Adrian Seeger. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 207, and the show notes will include reflection questions, and those are, one, if you offer a place-based conference, which of the six shortcomings of traditional conferences that Adrian mentions are you most susceptible to? Are those shortcomings significant enough to warrant a change? And then, two, If you were to pursue a pure peer conference format or blending peer conference aspects with your traditional conference, which of the obstacles that Adrian mentions are you most likely to encounter? How might you ever overcome those obstacles?
0: When you check out the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as that helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing.
1: And we'd also, of course, be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple podcast. Just go to leadinglearning.com Apple to get to the right place. So Lisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business.
0: We'd also be grateful if you would check out our sponsor for this quarter. You can find out more about Community Brands at leadinglearning.com communitybrands. And finally, consider telling
1: others about the podcast. You can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. And you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning and share us with others there. However you do it, please spread the word about leading learning.
0: Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.